Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street every day, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences and accomplishments are, or how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. I first met Mona Maiman in the early 70s. The connection that brought us together was music. Music is one of the main connections of Mona's life. Here's Mona Maiman. to Unspoken Unsung. Hi, Dan. It's good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. So we met so many years back that I don't even want to count, but it took me a long time to get to the musical roots that you were born into. Um, your father was a musician. Indeed he was. Tell us about your parents. Oh, I told you I might start crying if I talk about my dad, and that's funny because... Uh, I didn't know that emotion existed. But uh, my dad and mother were very, very wise, very talented, very undereducated, very poor, uh, both from the Ozarks, West Plains, Missouri. And my dad was a talented guitarist, bassist, as are you, Dan. And um, he played with a country western group called the Rhythm Rangers, which included on pedal steel Dan, uh, Don Warden, that name may not mean anything, but he was Dolly Parton's manager up until he died just in the last couple of years. And they toured, they went to Springfield and around the different parts of southern uh, Missouri. And uh, a young teenager named Porter Wagner, who was also from West Plains, started to sit in with the band and sing. And my mother, being young and a little insecure, told my dad it's either the road or the family. And so my dad chose the family. Whoa. And my sister Becky, whom you know, she said, oh my God, if dad had only chosen music, we'd probably be living in Nashville and we'd probably all be singers. Because as you know, I have a large family of sisters and we all sing. And uh, being a family, we have pretty good uh, harmony. Excellent and, uh, harmony, I've thank heard you. it. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. So. My so what did was, your parents mean? They met, interestingly enough, my mother was 15, my dad was, I think, 18, and my mother had snuck out of the house to go to a party, and my dad walked up behind her, put his hands around her eyes, and said, Hi, uh, I, I can't remember, it was Edna or Ida or Irma, but he was just wanting to meet my mother, and he was making up a name, I think, but... Uh, they met at a party that my mother wasn't supposed to be at, and I think three months later they were married. Wow. She was 15, 15 wow. years old. 
Can't even imagine that. So where did you grow up? I was born on 34 acres of land that we owned in West Plains, Missouri, south uh, southeastern Missouri, very close to Little Rock and Nashville. And uh, my dad delivered me, and uh, I, I was four years old when we left West Plains in a trailer that my dad built from the, the hardwood on the property. And we drove to Wichita, Kansas, where I went to grade school, Dodge Elementary. Isn't it funny? I remember the street address, 405 North Tracy. <laughs> and then we left to go to Northern California, where I went to school in uh, Santa Clara. Wish we had stayed there <laughs> and kept the house we had there. Uh, then we went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I went to junior high, the remainder of junior high and high school. And I met my husband, Robbie Drury, when I was 12. And Robbie, um, as you know, is a fabulous artist. He went on to work for Disney. He was an Imagineer with Disney. And we moved to North Hollywood with a young son, Eric. And that's where the Bumps Blackwell story comes in, but I won't jump the gun. But uh, that's a little bit of my travels. So you, you mentioned Porter Wagner. Wagner certainly is not a household name today, but he did have a syndicated TV series for over 20 years. He's a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. And as you mentioned, Dolly Parton, um, he's commonly considered to be one of the people who launched Dolly Parton's career. And she wrote a song called I Will Always Love You for Porter, which was made famous by Whitney Houston. Wow, wow. That was for Porter Wagner. Do you remember him? No, because I was a baby when we left. I was four. Mm -hmm. There's a recording where I'm crying out and, and a Porter's singing. You know, he was known for the big pompadour and the bejeweled suit, very right. tall and slender. And uh, he, he was in love with Dolly, from what I hear. Um, but she was interested in a career, <laughs> and we know what, that, what came of that. She's yeah. still doing it. So how do you think your father felt about giving music up? My, my dad never did. He uh, continued to play at Camp Pendleton, Masonic Lodges, Elks Lodges, anything on the weekends. He would pace, smoking cigarettes, so anxious to go play music. And I got hooked into singing on the bass, and I'd be singing in one room with my dad's Dixieland band, and Barbara Mandrell would be in another room for the officers club. Barbara Mandrell went on to be Barbara Mandrell, and I went on to have kids. And uh, <laughs> I had so many opportunities, Dad, and I always pulled back, always a little bit afraid of anything that would take me out of my comfort zone. But my dad played music up until he died. That was his love. You've mentioned before that you, you that he used to have people over to the house and they'd have jam sessions yeah. and like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Did that include the uh, the girls, you and your sisters? Well, we would sing, but it was mostly just a bunch. You know, musicians love to play music, Dan. <laughs> Any opportunity to play, and it was not about success. You know, it's not about money or fame. It was about music. You know, which is kind of where I'm at. Um, I love to, to perform. I love to have people that I can sing to. It gives you that extra little jolt. But 
you know, I walk around the house by myself singing all the time, and sometimes I'll go, man, that was darn good. Mm-hmm. And other times it's like, holy moly. But my dad was always a musician. Yeah. You mentioned Bumps Blackwell. So for those who don't know Bumps Blackwell, he was a band leader whose band members included Quincy Jones on trumpet. He had Ray Charles on piano. He also produced and mentored Little Richard and Sam Cooke. Tell us about Bumps Blackwell. Well, I didn't even remember Bumps until I saw a documentary recently on Jimi Hendrix. And he was... In the, in the documentary and in the credits, and I went, oh my God, that's Bumps Blackwell. So when I was talking about Robbie and I living in North Hollywood, when we were so young, we had young Eric, I was singing, as always, and my older sister Carol had a friend named Jody Powell, I think, Powers or Powell, gorgeous. She was a showgirl in Vegas. And uh, she and I and my sister Naomi, whom you also know, we were singing, and I think Jody had the connection to Bumps. So I called Naoma recently, and I said, do you remember the Bumps Blackwell era? And she said, sure. I remember going to his apartment, and she said, I remember that he had a black and white television, which I thought was so odd, because he was kind of a famous guy. <laughs> and she thought, why does he have a black and white television? I didn't remember that part, but he came to my little apartment on Vineland, North Hollywood. I played the guitar a little bit then, and we sang. And they wanted to kind of mentor us. He and another a colleague came over, and uh, he wanted us to go to the Ash Grove, which people may or may not remember in LA. It was a very cool club. And I remember being 19, and from, you know, West Plains, Missouri, and Wichita, and Albuquerque, not real sophisticated. And here I am at the Ash Grove, and I remember there were these big black women in coral robes in the back smoking pot. And I had never, ever been around anything like that. And I was very intimidated. And Naoma reminded me that I said to her, I just want to be a housewife. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of passed on bumps. But he he thought we were pretty good. So how old were you when you married Robbie? I was 18. Mm -hmm. Not uncommon in those days. (laughs) Also pregnant at the time. Also not uncommon. Yeah. But we had known each other since we were children, 12. And we're still friends today. So what do you remember of the musical get-togethers at your house? What were those like? Oh, Dan. You look back on that and you realize it was just common. It was just another day. Something that you look back on and realize how special it was, you know. But it just happened all the time. People were always around. We had a large family, seven kids, six girls and a brother, older brother. And, uh, you know, just always a lot of people. <laughs> always a ton of people. Just, you know, every, every genre of music, except jazz and rock. It was Dixieland, it was country western, Mostly country western, I would think. Mm-hmm. And I hated that music. Hated it. I remember in Wichita that my mother would have the radio and listening to all the oldies, you know, that, uh, okay, I'm trying to think of who they were. Ferlin Husky, you know, who was the singer? Uh, oh, God, I didn't know God made honky tonk angels. I can't think of her name right now. But I just remembered I hated that music. Mm-hmm. Hated it. And uh, so then when we were in. Albuquerque, and I was probably in the eighth grade, I think Elvis came on the scene. 
and that was wow. You know, Elvis, that sinful man. <laughs> mm-hmm. And before that was Bill Haley and the Comets. And, you know, I mean, I just remember living in a place in Albuquerque called Corrales, which my mother named the street Meadowlark Lane, which is now uh, the Meadowlark Shopping Center, Meadowlark everything. But we lived at the end of a dirt road overlooking the Sandia Mountains. My dad was going to build our big house, which never happened. And uh, I turned the radio on and listened to the music before I'd get on the bus to go 22 miles into school. And the Beach Boys and all the music from the West Coast, you know, it was just like untouchable to me. I was, you know, like off the turnip truck and uh, never liked country music. But I do like the country music now, which is more pop. But I'm trying to, Kitty Wells, I'm trying to think of Kitty Mm -hmm. Wells. As this song Mona wrote and recorded shows clearly, you may be able to take the woman out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the woman. that brought you to San Diego? Well, Robbie worked at a place called WED, W-E-D, which stood for Walter Elias Disney, and they were the arm, the entertainment parks like Disneyland and onto Disney World. Robbie uh, was starting, he met Walt Disney actually once, and I remember I was so impressed because I went to lunch at WED once, they had a chef, and you could go into the lunchroom and there was a guy with a white, you know, the chef's hat, and you could pick out anything you wanted. And I worked around the corner at a software company called Libriscope. I was young and I fell in love with a guy that was an engineer at Libriscope and I left Robbie. And uh, he had some land in Cardiff on Manchester. He was growing lychee nuts and passion fruit. 
And we would drive down, and we would stay in La Jolla at this one particular place across from, I think it's the Ran El Ranchero Mexican restaurant that all the locals in La Jolla would know, the surfers would all know. And I just kind of fell in love with La Jolla. And when I was in Albuquerque, I fancied myself a psychologist. That was what I was going to, to get a degree in. And I volunteered at a lot of the places in Albuquerque that, you know, when you were a kid, they were the nut house. That was what they were called. But it was, you know, for people that had learning disability. And I, was, I would volunteer, and I wanted to be around that. I always wanted to be around intellectual things anything that was something different than the poverty I came from. And uh, I remember babysitting for a professor at UNM, University of New Mexico, and he wanted to get me a scholarship at UNM. Uh, and I talked to my mother about it, and my advice from her was, why would you want to do that? All you're going to do is get married and have kids. So I didn't have the support to help with an education. Anyway, I was in Albuquerque, I had moved out at age 17, and I worked, it's called the Heights in Albuquerque, different areas of the city, and I worked for a group of psychiatrists and psychologists, and one of them was the son of Vincent Price, and uh, he was called Bart Price. I loved him. I was young, and uh, it was called Human Resource Institute, and flash forward to La Jolla, once again, worked for a psychiatrist named uh, uh, Philip Cavanaugh in La Jolla, and it was called Human Resource Institute. Philip Cavanaugh's brother was James Cavanaugh. He wrote a book called The Modern Day Priest, looks at his outdated that. church. He, yeah. he fell in love with a nun. And so right across from where I worked was Gillespie Cottage Daycare, which is now you have to line up to get in there, but I took Eric to school there. And I could walk across from where I worked to be with him. And I lived right up from Wind and Sea, you know, the surf spot. Sure. And I was living in a little triplex and working at Human Resources. And in one of the front little rental houses was a gal named Barbara Blum, fresh from Random House in New York City. And she said, how would you like to work for CRM? And I didn't know what CRM was, but it was a book publishing company in Del Mar, and it was a sister company of Psychology Today magazine. They had extended into the arm of college textbooks and I jumped at it. So I moved to Del Mar. I rented a house across from the ocean dam with a swimming pool. And I paid $125 a month. <laughs> and I started working for CRM. And it stood for Nick Charney, George Reynolds, who was head of the psychology department at UCSD, and Wynn Marston of the Marston family in San Diego. And uh, I was a sales. No, I was an executive secretary when I started working there for the production person, and we had a ton of people come out from New York City, uh, Random House, headed by a publisher, a wonderful man named David Dushkin. And um, we had chapters for the books written by famous people, and one of them was Michael Crichton. And uh, I had an office in the front, and Michael came in one day, and he was 6'10", I'm 5'10", and he filled the doorway, and remember, I'm 20-something then, so, you know, 5'10", long blonde hair, I'm getting tan from the beach, and, uh, and so there's the Michael Crichton story that begins. Back when you worked at CRM, um, you were a working mom, you had Eric with you? I did. Yeah. What was that like? 
That was hard. That was hard. I didn't like leaving him, but I didn't realize, Dan, that when you left your husband, you were entitled to child support or alimony. So I never got any money from him. And I worked a second job when Bully's Restaurant opened in Delmar, which is now closed. But a lot of the girls from CRM needed a second job. And we were hostessing or waitressing. I was hostessing there. So I worked there, and I worked at CRM. And I went to college at night at Palomar trying to get it, because I always wanted to get my college degree. Mm-hmm. So Eric you know, didn't have mom around a lot. And uh, the times when he would stay with his dad were, his, were very infrequent. But when you're, you know, in the 60s, I mean, women were being paid 70 cents on the dollar, mind you. And uh, my salary at CRM was $500 a month. But my house payment was about 125, as I said. So my friend Stevie, who's just been visiting from Ben, she and I would go to restaurants dragging Eric along. (laughs) And we ate well, and we, we took vacations, and we paid our bills all on that salary, but that was then, you know, that was North County then. And uh, yeah, it was hard. It was hard being a single mom. And I was from a family that that was very verboten. You didn't get divorced. You know, you weren't a single mom. You sucked it up and you stayed in a marriage. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. So were you kind of ostracized for a while? I was by my older brother. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like working for CRM? It was the most creative free job I ever had. You loved the job. I loved the job. Most of us loved the job so much that you would never think about calling in sick. In fact, when Eric would get sick and I couldn't have him in daycare, I would bring blankets or you know a cardboard box that kids love, <laughs> and I'd make him a pallet next to my desk, and he would stay with me. and. Um, you got the job done. You could go to the beach for two hours if you wanted to, but come back and get your job done. Now, I was two different things at CRM. I was an executive secretary, and I left to go to work for Michael Crichton and came back as a salesperson. So then I started traveling with the company, going to D.C. and New York and various places representing the American Psychological Association, CRM. We were pretty hot stuff with college textbooks, and I had the Western United States and Canada and another gal named Del Willette, we had the psych departments for the entire United States, and we did very, very well. So, How, how far had you gotten in your education when you got that job? Um, I was probably working toward an associate's degree, but I, I believed that I could, I could sell, you know? Well, I, what the, the part that, that, I mean, in today's world, I wonder, you know, obviously you had something really good going for you. An organization like that seemingly would want somebody to, particularly at executive secretary level, you'd think that they would they would demand, you know, the educational background and all that sort of stuff, bachelor's degrees at least, that sort of thing. You, you had something going for you. Youth, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Chutzpah. <laughs> So obviously things turned out fairly well because you ended up buying a house in Del Mar. I did on Sun Valley Road, an acre. Wow. For the magical twenty-five thousand dollars, Dad. 
Really? <laughs> and I had to piece it together from everywhere to put a down payment. It was hard. Wow. Wow. So tell us about how Michael Crichton stole you away from CRM. Oh, yeah. What happened? What happened? Um, well, he came into CRM one day. He was he was going to be writing a contributing chapter to a textbook. And I had an office near the front, and, and he saw me, and, and I was young. And um, <laughs> all I remember is that he just kept hanging around. He drove up in a red Porsche. And mind you, he's 6'10". How he folded into that car is beyond me. But uh, he said, whatever your salary is, I'll double it. Wow. And he was at the Salk Institute at the time on a postdoc fellowship. And so I moved over to the Salk Institute where I became his assistant and uh, typed a lot of books for him. He and his brother Douglas Crichton had written a book called Boston to Berkeley, 40 Brick Bag Blues. Mm -hmm. And at the time his book Andromeda Strain was being made into a film by Robert Wise, director. And so I got to meet him in LA, and I got to meet Jonas Salk and lots of the Nobel laureates that were at the Salk Institute. At the time, interestingly enough, Jonas Salk was dating Francois Gillot, mistress of Pablo Picasso. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, Del Mar was filled with intellectuals, artists, surfers, and not a lot of people like it is now. Um, but Michael was shy, very, very sweet, kind, and um, he has an MD degree from Harvard, but he couldn't stand surgery, and so he became a psychiatrist. And uh, on the side, he was writing books under, you know, pseudonyms Jeffrey Hudson and John Lang, and he got the Poe Award for fiction, Edgar Allan Poe Award, and then Andromeda Strain, you know, put him in the stratosphere as far as being an author. And then, as we know, he did ER, the television show, and he wrote Jurassic Park, and uh, many books in between that I typed till one, two, three in the morning. In between, I was flying to Hawaii <laughs> because PSA and the flights were cheap. I think we could fly round trip for $99 yes. to Hawaii. Do you remember those days, yeah. Dad? And Michael would tolerate it, you know, but I got my work done, and uh, then he started going to Hawaii, and there he was, riding Jurassic Park on Kauai. Um, I think I had a little bit to do with that, but probably not a lot. Anyway, he moved to L.A., and I told him I didn't want to move back to L.A. because I'd lived there with Robbie, and I didn't care for L.A. I loved North County. But he moved into an apartment on Doheny, and uh, I lost Michael. He got into the celebrity movie star stuff, and he changed. He changed a lot. And um, then, flashing forward a bit, I met Joel. And I had almost all of Michael's books, manuscripts, everything he had. I had boxes and boxes of it. And after meeting Joel, which is another story, Joel and I were going to Europe, I took everything up to Michael's house. And at that point in time, he was starting to collect art and became friends with Jasper Johns. and had very extensive uh, modern art collection, which when he died was, um, you know, yielded a lot from Christie's Auction House or Sotheby's. But I'm flashing forward a little bit too much. But Michael was a good guy, 
good guy. Yeah. He died I didn't young. know he was a psychiatrist. Yeah. He had an wow. MD from Harvard. June 26, 1971. Yes. Tell us about June 26, 1971. Well, my friend Stevie, <laughs> um, she moved one of her friends named Chris Hahn, whose daddy built downtown San Diego, Ernie Hahn, into my house because I had a, a large rental house in Del Mar. And so she moved Chris into my house and Stevie was persuasive. And supposedly Chris had tickets to a concert and Dan, I swear to God, the tickets were six dollars. Yes. And that was a lot of money for me to spend. And I had a son. But Stevie said, no, 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 Chris has comp tickets so we can go. And I went, I don't even know who this guy is. It was Leon Russell. So Stevie and I were supposed to meet Chris at the sports arena. And I was supposed to, you know, see this free concert, which didn't turn out to be free. We had to pay our six dollars, which I was very pissed about. And um, as soon as we got there, Stevie abandoned me, and I was sitting on the floor as we used to do in front of the stage. And these big, burly security guys were starting to kick people back with their feet from the stage. And once again, the turnip truck that I fell off of. And um, I was just so offended by that. And where was Stevie anyway? So I'm sitting there thinking, I don't want to be here, but Stevie's, I've got Stevie. And then I see this guy off to the corner of the stage who had an afro, cowboy boots, leather jacket. He starts to do this, motioning me. And I went, like, who, me? And I got up. Then I saw Stevie standing next to him. And so I felt safe to go over there. And as soon as I walked over and stood next to the guy with the afro, all the lights in the sports arena went out and went dark. And we grabbed each other kind of instinctively in the dark. That was Joel. And uh, <laughs> he, was, he was Leon's business manager and part owner of Shelter Records. I didn't know any of that. But Stevie kept kind of wandering around. She knew a lot of the guys from Wally Hyder Sound and never saw Chris the whole night. And Leon came on. I'd never seen him before. He was fantastic. And I could probably remember all the band, Carl Radel on bass, uh, Jim Preston on guitar, Carl Radel on drums, Claudia Lanier, backup singers, and Leon. Came out with that long white hair and the beard playing the hell out of the piano. And uh, he did the best version of Jumpin' Jack Flash I have ever heard. And it, when it was over, I was ready to go. And then Joel would kind of appear and reappear and say, hang out, just hang out. And so ended up, I hung out because I had Stevie. And then afterwards he said, hey, the band's going to go to this place and hear Ry Cooter. Want to come? And so he jumped in my little Volkswagen, proceeded to start rolling a joint. <laughs> and uh, we drove to PB and the whole band went in to hear Ry Cooter. And then I thought, well, where do I take this guy? Anyway, they, they were, the, the band was staying at the Hilton at the Bay. And so he said, why don't you take your friend home first, <laughs> Stevie? And then Joel came home with me and he never left. <laughs> that was kind of the story. Wow. He told me to quit my job. He had just rented a house in Laurel Canyon. And so we all flew to Hawaii together because Liam was playing at the big place in Oahu. Honolulu International Center? No. The HIC Arena? It's called something else. No, it starts with a B. Blaisdell. 
the Blaisdell. Mm. Do you remember that? Maybe no. they, they changed the name. Leon played there. Then we flew over to Maui, and we stayed up at the, uh, the Silver Sword Inn near the Haleakala Crater. And I remember Joel wanted to stay at a real fancy hotel, and I pitched a fit because that was not my style. So we ended up staying up near the crater in a little place with fireplaces because it was cold up there in the mountaintop. Anyway, I moved in with him in Laurel Canyon, and that's a whole other chapter. <laughs> wow. So tell us about Laurel Canyon. Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, we went up you know, Wonderland Drive, Lookout Mountain, up to Hermit's Glen where we had a house. And um, my dear friend and your friend as well, Tom Eaton, who's now died, passed away recently. He just got busted and he needed a place to go. And Stevie, once again, Stevie said, well, they have a place up in Laurel Canyon. Why don't you hang out with them? So Tom came up and then Tom's mother, Jerry. And I don't know when all of these musicians started to appear at our house, among them, Denny Doherty. He'd come over with a bottle of gin every day. This is Denny Doherty of the Mamas yes, and Papas. Yes, 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 <clears throat> and, um, and a guy named Doc, who was a musician. I just remember that Joel got calls a lot. People were in jail, people were overdosing, people were this, all these fires having to be put out all the time. And that was something that I didn't care for because I had a son, and Eric went to the school, Wonderland School, he was a first grader, and his best friend that he brought home, this gorgeous mulatto with black golden locks named uh, Aldous Hudson. <laughs> they were the best of friends, first graders, and I remember Aldous would play air guitar and Eric would play air drums. They're, what, six years old? That's Slash now, today, with Guns and Roses. That's who that was. He goes, Mom, flash forward 20 years, he, said, he was reading the Rolling Stones article. He said, do you know who Aldous is? That's, that's Slash with Guns <laughs> and Roses. Anyways, his mother was Ola Hudson, and she was a designer. She did a lot of the Pointer Sisters dresses. And the dad was Tony Hudson from England. He, he was a graphic artist. And one of the things I remember at the time, Joni Mitchell and uh, Aldous were working on a project together. She was illustrating his verses. This is a child. Hmm. That's how talented he is. So uh, we were there, I'd say a, a year. I'd say a year because I think Eric finished the school year. And I'd had my house in Del Mar. And I'd rented it out and I said, let's go back to North County. So we did. So these people that Joel was was kind of, sounds like he was kind of a fixer in a way. Yes, he was. And was I, that I, for the label? Was that part of his job or was the, how did that happen? Well, the, the three principals of Shelter were Leon Russell, Denny Cordell, and Joel. And Joel was a UCLA business grad and, you know, he was very savvy. He, you knew Joel, and you knew how he was kind of a fixer. He was calm, he was smart, he had a lot of experience. Before that, he was managing the grassroots, you know, mm -hmm. when he was in his early 20s, because Warren Itner went to Fairfax High, a friend of Joel's, and Joel was their business manager. I think Midnight Confessions was one of their big hits. Right, yeah. Joel said he remembers they were touring in the South on a bus, and they heard it on the radio. It had made it to the top 10. They were all excited. But um, 
Yeah, Denny Cordell. He was born in Argentina, reared in England, and Leon was just a very quiet guy. Denny had a lot of the connections. Joel took care of the finances, arranged a lot of things. Um, yeah, he was just a stable asset, I think. What happened to his career and your life when you moved back to North San Diego County? Well, he sold his, his shares of shelter and uh, he moved in with me. And then Joel was a big fish in a little pond here. You know, every musician in North County in San Diego was gravitating to Joel. He also, with Tom Eaton and Anchovy Barca and uh, with funding from Tony Channon and Bill Bain and Romeo Robichaux, he started putting concerts on at the La Paloma. La Paloma was in disrepair. And uh, he started, you know, he had a lot of musical connections. I mean, when we were in LA, I remember going into the whiskey and David Geffen is sitting in there and Joel walked in and David Geffen starts, shelter is in the house, bowing down to Joel. Um, I remember seeing Rita Coolidge performing there and uh, all of the big uh, you know, music company reps were there. David Geffen had, um, can't think of his record company now, I know you would know it. Electra. You know? No, that wasn't it. Uh, that's who Jesse Ed signed with in New York when we flew back there. But gosh, I can't remember his his record company. Started with that's an A. Okay. Can't remember. Anyways, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, and you know, huge roster. But Joel was a big cheese then, you know. And so the La Paloma up. was was a theater. Tell us about the La Paloma. This is in Encinitas. Yeah, when it had the red sofa seating no individual chairs. It was crazy. It was crazy. Um, he started bringing concerts down. I mean, mind you, this is a little North County burg. And we had the Albatross in Del Mar. We had the La Paloma. I think the venue for the distillery turning into another bird wasn't there yet. But uh, we were bringing some heavyweights down to this area, the talent. And I opened the first concert, I opened for J.J. Kale because Jesse Ed Davis was a friend and, and I think Joel's doing some business with him. People may not know Jesse Ed Davis. He That's was an American true. Indian I, from I, Oklahoma. And he would be the guitarist guitarist. You know, he was that good. He, people would know the guitar solo by Jackson Brown, Dr. My Eyes. That's Jesse and so many others. He's played with Taj Mahal, and he filled in for Ron Wood with the Stones. Um, you know, there's many, many stories there. But anyway, um, Jesse had got a band together for my band to open for J.J. Kale. It was Jesse Ed Davis and all the Oklahoma musicians with Leon. Among them was Klaus Vorman, who was a graphic designer, designed the black and white album for the Beatles. They were all here. And everybody stayed at the Namara Inn, all the musicians. <laughs> yeah. And, I remember uh, that. <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> a lot of fun. So Joel put a lot of concerts on there, and he was having Jimmy Cliff come. And we were just, the money was just on the bubble of surviving. And he had, you know, reggae was big in North County. Sure. And so Jimmy Cliff, he had sold that concert out. He was going to be here for two nights. I think four shows all sold out. The tickets were probably $4 each, you know, that's how long ago. 
But Jimmy Cliff got hung up with immigration, and he didn't show. And so that's, things got a little wobbly after that. But <laughs> if anybody remembers the tubes sure. appearing at the La Paloma, I thought the walls were going to cave. It was that crazy, you know. Naked dancers, just nuts. And I was singing most of the time at other gigs, so I didn't get to go to a lot of the, the concerts. But uh, that's another story, too. So you, you had a band? Well, Jerry had a band. and uh, Jerry who? <laughs> I think his name is McCann, Jerry oh, McCann. Oh, that Jerry. <laughs> that Jerry. And I, I, it was the Albatross Restaurant, which was a church. Then it was the Albatross Restaurant, and now it's the Delmar Library. But there are stories in that building. And uh, Tom Eaton knew that I sang, and Jerry was playing. Were you in the band at that yes. time? And... Uh, Tom asked if I could sing, and I stood up and I, I sat in with you guys, and then I started playing with Jerry. And uh, <laughs> during the break, Tom didn't think that enough people were paying attention to my singing, so he dropped his pants, just stood there bare naked. <laughs> I don't think anybody cared. It was a wild time. We had some fun though, didn't we, Dan? Back we did in the day, indeed. We did. Matter of fact, you know what I remember? I remember you had a following of young women that it used to make, it, it used to remind me of a duck and ducklings. <laughs> these, these young, very attractive women used to just trail behind you like a flock of little ducklings. You've told me that, Dan, and I don't remember that. You know, there were, we were I think all maybe, young. maybe some of them were the, the, the servers. I don't remember. Kathy? Well, uh, we, we love Kathy. She married Tom. That Kathy? Kathy, yes, yeah. and now Kathy, Kathy Wentz. Wentz. Yes, yeah. indeed. That was something. It was. So what happened then to, to Joel and your musical? It sounded like you had a kind of a trajectory, a, a path that, that, um, that something changed. Well, you know, you have to have money to live, that, oh. that thing called money. <laughs> and concerts were fun, and everybody was having a good time, but we had to feed our family, and I had uh, Eric, and then I got pregnant. And I went to a psychic in L.A. Her name was Claire, an older woman from Europe. And she turned out to be Jimi Hendrix's mentor. And there was a movie made called Rainbow Bridge in Hawaii with Jimi Hendrix, and she's in it. But I went to her, I was pregnant, and she said, you're going to have a little boy, a very clever little boy. And you know, Vietnam had been an ugly time for this country, and men were getting drafted, and I thought, my son will not be drafted to fight an unjust war. Mm. And so I'm gonna make him a dual citizen, and we're gonna go someplace else. So. Joel had talked with Chris Blackwell of Island Records about possibly heading up Island Records in Europe. So we went to Europe. We, we kept our little place in Del Mar and my ex Robbie stayed there with Eric and Joel and I off we went. And um, we sold my guitars and we sold my BW and we got a ticket on uh, the German airline and we flew into Frankfurt 
We were really poor uh, because we were having too much fun, uh, you know, in North County. But um, I was determined to have my son, and I think we ended up in London. And I checked the hospitals, and where the royals and I remember Mia Farrow had had one of her children was Queen Charlotte's Hospital. So I made sure mm. I was in that vicinity to have that as my hospital. And off we went. And we were walking around Piccadilly Circus in London. And it's so funny because you can be 5,000 miles away and you bump into somebody from L.A. or from North County. Like We were in Tahiti and we bumped into somebody from Cardiff. Um, so Joel bumped into somebody. And we had been staying at like a hostel, youth hostels. And this was a guy that was with Procol Harum. I think maybe a manager. I mean, he knew Joel from Shelter. Mm-hmm. And he said, there's a place to stay. Um, so Joel somehow also got a, a Range Rover car, and we had a place to stay in London. And the roommate who was on tour came home one night, and he's rattling around opening the door, and I'm standing in the little kitchen, barefoot and pregnant, and he opened the door and he goes, this must be the wrong apartment. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, I'm Mona. This is my husband, Joel. And No, it wasn't my husband yet. I, we weren't married. That was another thing. We weren't going to get married. We were too cool for that. But um, it was Frankie Miller. And that's another name that perhaps people don't know. He was a Scottish, he is a Scottish rhythm and blues singer, one of the best ever. He has since had terrible, uh, he had a brain uh, hemorrhage, Last I heard, they were having a benefit for him with every name musician in England, starting with Elton John, Rod Stewart, everybody, because they knew what a talent, they know what a talent Frankie Miller is. And so we, we roomed with Frankie for a while. Frankie and I would, would drink. I was pregnant, but I would drink beer. And, uh, <laughs> and Frankie would get pissed, as they call it. And we'd sit and write lyrics and sing together, and he'd play the guitar. It was fabulous. And uh, then we went to a place called Richmond Park and lived there for a while. And then Joel managed to uh, connect with uh, one of Leon Russell's roadies named Kellogg's. Last name was Kellogg's, Kalinowski. And his girlfriend, Lizzie, happened to be best friends with Jenny Fleetwood, married to Mick Fleetwood. So through that connection, we met up with Fleetwood Mac, who later came to L.A. and to Del Mar, and that's another chapter. Your son Daniel was born in England? In London. Wow. So is he, did you succeed? He's dual citizen? Yes, and he's eligible to, to <laughs> he would, would have been, to be drafted into two countries, wow. England and America, but he's now 46. Made it past that little hurdle, huh? Yeah. So it still sounds, there's so much energy and so much connection in the musical world. What, and, but you mentioned that money wasn't happening. And what direction did you choose? What happened then? I went to work. I went to work. I started editing and doing some stuff with publishing. And Joel made a total left turn and started working at Wavecrest, a timeshare in Del Mar. So it was humbling, 
you know, to go from the big fish, rock and roll, and partying all the time, and everybody knew everybody, nobody locked their houses or cars, and things changed, because as you know, you know, North County was a lot of weed and pot, and uh, for the opening of Another Bird, I had asked Jesse Davis to bring down one of his celebrity famous friends. He said, I'll see what I can do. So he calls Joel from the Namara Inn, where all the musicians stayed, and he said, we're here, and we were going to go to the opening of Another Bird, which was the sister club to the Albatross, owned by Mike Sexton. And uh, we drove to the Namara Inn, and who opened the door but George Harrison? Wow. And I remember I said, how wonderful. And so the weekend in Del Mar was spent with George and his then-girlfriend, Olivia. And he had just gotten back from Kauai. So... We hung out, we went to restaurants, he came to my house, he heard some of the co recordings I had done with Jesse Ed of my songs, and I was so nervous being around George Harrison <laughs> that I drank way too much wine at dinner that night, and so when we came back to the house for him to hear my tapes, and they were tapes, I remember hearing George Harrison say, she sounds like Etta James, and I am so sorry, Etta James, but I don't sound anywhere as anywhere near Etta James, but to hear George Harrison say that, that's awesome. That is. And I passed out from drinking too much wine, and then when I awoke later, they'd left, and the next day I got a call from Jesse Ed's girlfriend, Patty, and said, we're going back to L.A. George came down here to get away from the drugs. <laughs> there were more drugs here than there were in L.A. <laughs> So we had also gone with George and his girlfriend to another bird to the opening. I remember his girlfriend didn't have an ID. And and here we are with George Harrison trying to get into this club in, in Solana Beach. And the guys at the, at the door wouldn't let her in. And Joel said, do you know who this is? <laughs> this is the Beatles right here. So anyway, then I guess we got in at some point. But uh, I would think so. We did. I sang at the Another Bird Open for Bill Withers. Bill wanted to go to coffee. I said, I'm sorry, I'm married. Um, yeah, I opened for him. I opened for J.J. Kale. Jerry and I opened for a Dutch, I think we're Dutch, called Focus at downtown, one of the big venues there. Fun stuff, yeah. you know, a lot of singing. Did you and Joel both run that business, the mortgage business? Uh, he had the broker's license. I did not. I remodeled the office. I manned the front desk. I paid all the debts, um, like women usually do, and he got the glory. Uh, but uh, then we, you know, we were struggling dearly when California was having a downturn. So we, our, our son Daniel was going to school in Colorado, and Colorado was booming at the time. And he was going to a school in Durango called Fort Lewis, and they desperately needed an honest real estate, you know, a loan broker. So we started opening offices in Colorado. We had Durango, Mancos, Pagosa Springs, all over the place, and we survived. And then California started to boom. And I remember Joel saying something about interest rates could possibly go below 6%. <laughs> and, uh, he didn't survive to see that. He died at 58, and uh, 
you know, we would have made so much money from the reputation he had and the referrals and the low interest rates. But it is what it is, you know. Now you also had another son. Skyler. Yes, indeed. When did Skyler come along? Skyler came along. All my sons are February birthdays. In fact, I was celebrating Eric's 15th birthday when I went into labor with Skyler. And uh, off we drove to the birth center on Washington to have baby Skyler. And uh, my dear friend Doris Durrell, who was with Mike Panzer, who was a fairly famous attorney in North County back in the day. She had just given birth to her son, Ian, in the same room where I ended up having baby Skyler. What a difference from having Eric in Fallbrook and having Skyler where you could walk and just, okay, it's time to have the baby, and then you take a shower in your home in two hours. Um, so Skyler is now 41, married with my first little grandchild. Oh, he works beautiful. for BuzzFeed, doing well. Um, Eric's in Costa Rica, living the dream, surfing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Daniel, who I thought would end up in Europe or New York, is in Orange County <laughs> trying to be an entrepreneur like his dad. So my boys are all doing well. The, the changes you mentioned, I mean, pretty heady stuff that you were in, obviously. Then getting into the mortgage business, was that, were those happy days or was that, a, was that just a... Those were survival days, you know, we weren't partying. It's so funny how people suddenly disappear when you're not the center of the party universe, yes. you know. So the, the people that are really dear and, and real are there, you among them. Um, but you know, we had our time, and uh, at a certain point you have to be adult and grown up, and you, know, you have a family, so you've gotta do what you have to do to provide for that. And we bought this t really run-down house in Solana Beach that a bunch of guys have been renting, and it had pot in the attic, and you know, cigarette stains on the walls, and garbage in the backyard, and front yard. And we, we were struggling at that point. And I used to drive around to just to try to find someplace because we were renting a house at the time and, I, and we ended up buying this house that I'm still in 36 years later, thank God, because real estate in Solana Beach has gone through the roof. So Joel never wanted to sell that house, although I always wanted land with animals and plants and trees. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that I have that now, you know. I would give it all up for anything to be with Joel, but He's not here, but I think, you know, he has provided for me just, you know, Joel really was a life changer. I was raised in a family that didn't touch, didn't say I love you. Joel was from a Jewish family that all they did was hug and touch and kiss and I love you. And he brought that into my life and I'm so grateful for that among so many other things. But Joel was always the guy that was at the head of everything. I helped facilitate, you know, we were a good team in that regard. You know, though, I think there's something to be said for when the false friends fall away. You know, when the people that are just the, the hangers-on disappear and what's left is real. So it seems as though there, you know, I can imagine that though there was a struggle that had kind of a flavor of survival, that there was another aspect of it that really could end up being a really um, 
kind of an epiphany, a, a time of real joy and discovery. Any anything resonate about that at all? Um, the epiphany, I'm not sure how to relate to that. Um, I'm very happy with the friends that I have because as we get older, you know, we're not able to party like we used to and give as much time and energy. So the value of the real depth of friendship is a treasure to me. You're a treasure to me. Stevie's a treasure to me. You know, Kathy uh, Wins has reached out recently and, and the memories of that group of the little ducklings, as you call them. I don't know that she was one of them, but <laughs> she was. You know, she just was. the best, the best people ever. And then, of course, you meet new friends, and Nancy and Hedge, and Jerry is there, and you know he's married, and his lovely. Wife. I mean, there's just, and I have a big family, but it's okay because it was it was a lot of fun at the time. You know, not a lot of time for reflection, and just you just went and did. And now I see my little granddaughter, and I realize. I missed seeing the joy of every stage of development and growth because I was just busy all the time, you know. Mm. I was singing, I was housewiving, I was mom, I was volunteering, going on field trips. It just It's a blur, you know, just one day, you're 75, and we're referred to as old because we are. Mm -hmm. But I forgot all the, the whole Hawaii thing of how I was always going to Hawaii. When Joel died, I was a I was a mess, a real mess. And this is worth telling. I I had some life insurance money that got me through. It wasn't a lot, but it got me through. And I went to lunch with a banker that I had not known before. And we went to Kai's in Cardiff. And I loved her. We turned out to be Libras with our birthdays one day apart. She's John Lennon's birthday, the 9th of October, I'm the 10th. And we had a wonderful lunch, and as we were leaving, she said, I have this dear friend in Hawaii. She's having a hell of a time finding somebody to house sit and take care of her cat while she has to go back to Ireland to take care of her mom who's ill. And I said, I'll go. And she said, well, she needs somebody right away. And I said, I'll go. And so within, I think, 10 days, I was flying to Oahu, and uh, I met a woman named Selena Heaton. Selena's from Dublin, Ireland never known her in my life and she's showing me her house her little apartment she's renting below from a woman named Cresha who's another story and uh, she was getting ready to go to Ireland and we went down to the beach just to kind of get to know one another and I started telling her about Joel and I said he he was part owner of a company called Shelter Records and she goes Shelter Records I worked for Shelter Records Wow. I worked for Denny Cordell who was the other principals with Leon and Joel. Mm -hmm. And it turned out she had been in San Francisco. She was married at the time, lost her husband also. But they were with Jesse Ed Davis in San Francisco. And Jesse Ed Davis had left San Francisco and came to our house and stayed with us because he was trying to clean up from heroin, which he got strung out on playing with the Rolling Stones. And I met with I met Mick Jagger. Uh, Joel and I were in New York when who we went to sign with Electra Records, Jesse Ed, and we'd come back to our hotel, Gramercy Park Hotel, and the chauffeur was in the lobby and said, "Mick's upstairs." And Joel said, "Okay, very casual." I said, "Mick, Mick," and uh, it was Mick Jagger, 
and Jesse Ed was teaching him to play guitar in the hotel room. And Mick was in a three-piece tan suit. He had just left uh, his wife, Bianca, at a yacht for Andy Warhol. Again, I'm name-dropping, but it was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And so I just got to stay in the room and listen and watch as Mick was learning to play the guitar that was being taught by Jesse Ed Davis. And while we were there in New York for the signing with Electra, we went to the record plant where I was out in the lobby because John Lennon and Yoko Ono were in one of the other studios and Jesse was in another studio recording. Greg Allman shows up to give Jesse Ed a beautiful turquoise and silver bracelet that was his brother Dwayne's because Dwayne had admired Jesse Ed. And I go to the bathroom that was kind of, it felt like it was kind of jutted out from the lobby. And I'm on the pot in the bathroom and the door opens and it's John Lennon. And he goes, oh, excuse me there. And I had my pants around my ankle. Well, well wait, don't leave. And uh, we went to <laughs> parties and met Clive Davis. And it went on and on and on. You know, that was, that was the kind of life I was living. It yeah. was wonderful. Sounds like you, you mourn it still. No, not at all. I just am grateful. Mm -hmm. I'm just happy and grateful. Because, you know... When I was young and I was with my family that wasn't very educated and not, you know, very uh, traveled or experienced, I was determined to do the things they hadn't done. And nothing was going to hold me back or stop me. And so I can say at this point, I've done a lot, you know. I, I'm, I don't regret a lot that I didn't do. You know, I regret that Joel died so young. I regret politics that we're having to deal with right now. But I can say that I've fulfilled a lot of wishes and my bucket list consists of wanting to go to Israel and Africa and hopefully I'll do that. But there's a lot of things I've been able to do. So you were, you, after Joel died, you went to Hawaii. You mentioned meeting Selena. What else happened? Uh, you, because you, you really developed a love affair with the islands, didn't you? I have always loved Hawaii. And uh, I remember I thought, well, I've got to do something. So I wanted to volunteer at a senior home on the North Shore. And I was in the parking lot, and out came this short, gorgeous guy named Percy Tahira. I didn't know that was his name. He's, he's Maori from New Zealand. And he had a guitar slung around his back and, of course, you know, music. And I said, excuse me, do you know where the administration office is? And he goes, what's your name? He, he said, back your, back your truck up. I was driving Selena's stick shift, you know, Toyota truck. And uh, we, we ended up singing in the parking lot. And I, I met Percy, who turned out to be a real lifesaver for me because he was exotic. He was Maori. He was a musician. He was kind of a celebrity in uh, Laie. Uh, he was one of the first labor missionaries to come from New Zealand, devout Mormon. My life healed in Hawaii. You know, being there was what I needed. And you really almost feel like, you know, these things, they do happen for a reason. And, and another interesting thing is I was standing in my dining room on June 26th, five, six days ago, with Stevie and Jerry McCann, and I went, because Jerry was mentioning he was gonna be playing at a gig at the Aztec Brewery, 
And something about June 20, I said, today's June 26th, you guys. I said, do you know that I met Joel on June 26th? And I said, wait a minute, it's our 50th year anniversary that we met today. And there I was with Stevie, who lives in Bend, Oregon, and she's just here for uh, some business and vacation. And Jerry, who, you know, has been really pivotal with music. He played at Joel's funeral, I was told. I don't really remember a lot because I was out of it. But uh, Hawaii is a magical place. That's, you know that from your experience living there. It's just beautiful, you know. But when you live there, and I bought a house there, and I lived there for seven years, you get to know what it's like to live with the people. And the beauty is always constant, but you get to see how it is being a minority. And I love the South Pacific people, so I was very happy there, mm -hmm. very happy. Do you plan to go back? Well, the price of everything, mm -hmm. I sold my place that was one house from the ocean and I'm kicking myself. That house is worth double what I sold it for a few years ago. You know, if things start to go down a little bit in price, I don't know if I'd have to buy a house, but it would be nice to rent a place for the winter or something, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with Oahu now, probably like you are. Um, I spent some time on the Big Island. Uh, Maui was the place I would go to back when I was younger, but Oahu has everything you could want, you know. And at my age, you have to think about hospitals and doctors and, you know, how far is the airport and, you know. So many great people in the world, Dad. There are. Yeah, you just have to get up and travel. Well, speaking of great people in the world, tell us about being a grandmother. Oh. <laughs> well, she is gorgeous, and that is no joke. Stevie just went up with me, and she said, oh, my God, pictures don't even do her justice. Her mother is part Persian and has black hair and blue eyes, and my son is blue-eyed, and this little girl has blue eyes that are just gorgeous, has the olive skin coloring of her mother, and she's so smart. Because How her old mother, is she? she's one and a half, wow. 18 months. And I noticed that when we went to visit, she now grabs your finger or your hand and she goes, she starts pulling you when she wants to do something. And the word she uses a lot is no. She's sassy. And her mom said, Oh my God, I'm in for it. She'll probably leave home at 15. <laughs> she's just smart as a whip. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have to say probably every grandmother feels this way, but I worry about the world we're leaving our kids and our grandkids, you know. I have hope that people will, you know, straighten up and right the ship, but right now we're in a kind of a weird time, aren't we? That we are, yeah. So as you look forward, are there, are there ambitions that you have? Are there, is there a bucket list you mentioned Israel and Africa being yeah. on part of your bucket list. Yeah. What else? Well, I would like to go back to Hawaii and have a house because listening to the waves is the best sleeping pill you can take. You know, that's just heaven on earth to me. And the colors of Hawaii. You know, Stevie's been to Fiji and I've been to Tahiti. Hawaii is just as beautiful to me as Tahiti is. Um, I haven't been to South America. I don't know that that calls me, but I'm sure it would be fabulous. Have you ever been? 
Not, no, I've been to, uh, you know, the Grenadines, which is fairly close to South America, yeah. but that's about it. Yeah. Joel and I went to Bequia, uh, off of St. Vincent. That's real close. That's in that area. Um, my son wants me to come to Costa Rica. Have you been to Costa Rica? No. Nor have I. We'll see. You know, I, I just I just feel like uh, it'll open up and happen. I think COVID has really done a number on my head, you know, of being alone for so long. And now it's starting to open up and I'm seeing more people and I'm going out a bit more. We went to the Padre game for Father's Day. I got a call from Skylar and Leah was sick. She'd gotten tickets for them to go for Father's Day. And Skylar asked me to go. So off we went, we drove down to Padre Stadium don't do that. <laughs> it's not good. Finally, we had to find a parking place where Skylar was going to explode. He paid $45 to park. And we walked out of the parking garage and there was Petco Park. And we had an 18 month old who wants to talk and socialize and run around. And the place was packed. And it was so exciting. Padres won. We didn't get to see, uh, what's his name? Tatis, the guy that just made the all-star team no, that is just I don't fabulous. Pod oh, you don't? Okay. Really well, I have three sons. so. And a husband that loved the Padres and the No, Chargers. we ended up going, too, just because... Um, oh, you went because of the Reds. Well, no, we have a, a soon-to-be nephew-in-law who pitches for the Cincinnati Reds. So he got us all tickets when the Reds played the Padres. So we, this was just a couple weeks ago, too. You turned coat. <laughs> oh, I, I, we got that because we were wearing Cincy shirts yeah. and all that sort of thing. And, and we were catching some catching some vibes, you might say. <laughs> So, well, you got the good treatment then, didn't you? Good seats and everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. We were at field you probably level. didn't pay $45 to park, did you? No, we paid $30 to park. Oh, yeah. that's still pretty, pretty rich. So looking, looking at your life now from the, you know, it's kind of like both sides now. What, what do you consider to be the things you're most grateful for Oh, in my your God, life? my children, without even a question. Yeah. Just so grateful for my kids. And my granddaughter and my friends, you know. I mean, my parents are gone. I've lost a sister. Um, I've kind of lost other sisters because of politics. It's really sad. I don't know if we're going to go into that. But, uh, yeah, just the rich relationships, you know, wonderful, deep. So grateful for friends and family and my children. That's it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what it's all about, really. It is what it's all In about. In the end. It's, what is that Beatles line? And in the end, the love you make is equal, equal to, to the love, love you you give. Something like that. <laughs> Something like it sounds good. Well, on that note, we'll call it a a, a day today, and it's really <laughs> been a pleasure talking with you and hearing Thank more you. about your life. I mean, after knowing you all these years, I'm learning more every day. That's really a treat. Thanks, so, thank man. you. My pleasure.
Mona had a unique point of view about music. She really got to see all the highs and the lows. And like her father before her, rather than seeking fame and fortune through music, she chose music for music's sake. It's been a pleasure speaking with Mona, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversera Studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung.